good day. I'm Dr. John Ewing, and this is Dr. Drake Spaeth, and this is our second podcast, and today's subject is on addiction. When does, and the question is, when does uh, agency evaporate in the face of impulse? So I was wondering, Drake, if you would speak to us for a moment on uh, how to tell if something is an addiction or not. Yes. Well, you know, there is, even in my field, which is clinical psychology, some controversy about the extent to which an addiction is relegated only to a substance that we ingest, say, you know, a drug, um, something that we have a physiological craving for, an addiction to a psychological craving for, or to what extent an addiction is also a compulsive behavior or is a compulsive behavior you know something that we do again and again that we can't sometimes seem to simply help ourselves doing or to stop from doing is that also an addiction or are compulsions something separate from addictions in terms of substances i suppose in my own view that it almost seems like splitting hairs, that I'm fine with the idea that an addiction is a behavior of some sort, whether it's eating, drinking, taking drugs, um, engaging in different forms of sexual activity, um, doing things that we enjoy, getting on the internet, um, watching TV programs, those kinds of things. Something that, in normal proportion, brings a certain amount of pleasure, enjoyment, is a good thing. But when it gets to the point where we simply can't seem to stop ourselves from doing it, and then it's getting into a place where it interferes with life satisfaction and success in other dimensions of life, one might argue that it's gotten to be a problem. And... So when do we lose agency? I think that is definitely a blurry line, but it's hard to argue that it uh, doesn't, at least it's not apparent when we are not having the success or the proportion or balance of success because we're doing too much of a given thing and that thing is getting in the way of success and other things. Good. So... Um when we talk about an addiction, very often we start out having a choice in some sort of a behavior, and we may have uh, uh, discovered some kind of new activity or new substance, and uh, we think, oh, yeah, this is just the thing. This is what we want. And so initially it starts out uh, more or less as an idealized hobby, as something that will bring us pleasure and enjoyment, something that is desirable to pursue. And then at some point, uh, the pleasure seems to diminish, and or we might have consequences from uh, engaging in a particular activity. And then when we decide to stop, we find that it's not so easy. Indeed. And then from an existential standpoint, which is, of course, one of my favorite psychological theories deriving from existential philosophy, I can't help but think of Viktor Frankl whenever we get in discussions like this, that addictions can serve as a way of escaping from or avoiding facing 
the existential vacuum within ourselves or the fear that at the heart of who we are, there is simply nothing there. And of course, that nothingness at our center reminds us of the terror of death and non-being that we will one day face. So the idea that all anxiety sort of arising from death anxiety or the, the terror of nothingness, sometimes we tend to escape from those anxieties through these kinds of pleasures and they end up keeping us at a surface level of our life without ever getting into the depths. Which is an excellent uh, segue into thinking about what is agency. If we have uh, some agent that is making choices and decisions, uh, what is this agent? How does this work? And what is the, the nature of being? What, what is it to exist? Yes. Well, and I think, for me, that also is connected to the core question, what is, what is consciousness? Because if we ask, what is this me that is engaging in this choice, where does this sense of me come from in all of the organicity of thought and feeling and emotion and self-awareness. In fact, where does self-awareness come from? These are, uh, these are the big questions in many ways, right? Yes. Uh, you, you actually spoke uh, a mouthful of very complex subjects, uh, the nature <laughs> of consciousness and then um, uh, some idea of the self in terms of physical substance and then in terms of social role, and then in terms of li expected uh, life course. And, yeah. um, and then there's also this sense of self as in uh, uh, our preferences and what we desire to do. Indeed. And I also think of Gabor Mate, who has written a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, where he s explores the link between addictions and trauma um and that you know the stresses and traumas we have great and small sort of end up getting covered over through addictions or again we serve the addiction in order to uh have the escape from facing the trauma and the pain and the uh, emptiness sometimes engendered by loss grief and uh big wounds in our lives this is true, and sometimes it would appear that pursuing the addiction uh, has a protective and useful function to protect yeah. us from the feelings or situations that we would like to avoid. Yeah. Uh, uh, when you speak about uh, Dr. Frankel, for example, uh, we can only imagine him in the concentration camp caring for fellow prisoners, some of whom are dying and uh, watching the, uh, the whole process of uh, uh, the disintegration of, of the human being around him. Yes. Uh, yeah, one might be tempted to uh, get into card games or gambling or, or any number of activities to escape from that awful present. Yes. I've discovered that um, when people... Uh, uh, repeat an activity, uh, very often the, uh, the center of control moves from 
interactions between the brain tem- brainstem and the cortex down into the brainstem, and the behavior becomes more automatic. And trauma is often a type of learning that takes place in the brainstem, uh, which we can think of as more or less uh, the lower world as opposed to the cognitive uh, world of thought, the upper world of direct memories and beliefs. So how, how do you go about accessing some of those uh, more animalistic, lower-level experiences and bringing them to the light of day and making sense of them? Well, I think in, in my world, if I say I'm working with clients who are struggling with an addiction, and mind you, addictions are not necessarily my specialty, although trauma certainly is. So I'm fascinated, again, by the link between trauma and addictions, very much so. But I would try to work with a client on ways that I like to say to gently but resolutely turn inward and face the the pieces that are their deepest fears to kind of lean into that. Like Joseph Campbell says, the cave that you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. And so I'm not above invoking those kinds of mythic storied examples to advocate for the value to be gained from doing the hard thing. And that to face the fear that the addiction is a means of avoiding could be par excellence the way to break its hold over over you and to uh, reduce the helplessness and then increase or restore, perhaps, recover the sense of agency that one has in one's life. Yeah, it's, it's interesting from my perspective, uh, dealing with people that have addictions to uh, chemicals and substances, they start out deliberately pursuing uh, the state of intoxication and euphoria, but then the uh, the reward anticipation system, which gives us the euphoria in response to a particular substance, adapts rapidly so that there's less and less euphoric effects from uh, ever higher doses of whatever substance is, is taken in. Yes. And then there's a transformation where the dysphoric after effect uh, with increased irritability and anxiety becomes something that the person is separate is, is desperate to avoid. Yes. And after a while, the person's need to avoid that dysphoric after effect and the um, irritability and anxiety that, that goes along with that overpowers their need to avoid the substance or to stop uh, uh, doing something that has diminishing returns. Yeah. John, what do, you, what do you think about the whole 12-step approach in the face of something like that? Because the paradox that I'm facing in this work is, in, I, I can't help but feel that a person, again, recovers their agency by facing the source of all of this Whereas in 12-step philosophy, it sounds like one admits one's powerlessness over it. And so there's almost, to me, a sense of reinforcement of the lack of agency, and yet calling upon a higher power or some inner resources, I suppose, that could stand in for a higher power 
in the in some cases, or at least in or, or perhaps in many cases, seems to paradoxically almost help the person reconnect with that by again paradoxically admitting that their powerlessness to then find some sense of power in connecting with that. What do you what do you what are your thoughts about that? I think that the the twelve steps uh, really require a lot of interpretation to. Uh, understand in a useful fashion. And not everybody that practices the 12-step process uh, uh, applies it in the same way. Um, when we admit that uh, we are powerless over a substance, uh, what, that, what that consists of is to recognize that uh, the pursuit of this substance as an ideal of pleasure is seriously flawed and that it is unworkable, and that we're not going to be able to uh, use it in such a way that uh, we're going to have the pleasure we seek uh, without any harm or bad consequences. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, then the admission of of powerlessness, uh, I think, is an acknowledgement that the more we pursue a particular substance, the less control over our use of it we're going to have. Mm-hmm. And so there's a certain amount of um, uh, power that, that people have to have to be able to come to these conclusions. And so the, the uh, uh, admission of powerlessness sometimes is, is like uh, 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 some people interpret that as a submission to some kind of a, relig- a religious edict or moral principle yes. and uh, giving up of, of intellectual pursuit and of your own ideas. And that would be an unfortunate development, I think. Um, and there is this incredible power of the conscious mind to rationalize its way into justifying just a little bit or just a little slip or, or what if I hang out with these people, these are my friends, and... Um, uh, this rationalization process uh, oftentimes uh, takes place in that upper part of the brain, the intellect, our pride, and there are other parts of our brain that may recognize that a particular substance is not good for us and that these people are not good to hang out with. And yeah. uh, so this awareness of an internal dialogue, I think, is is the value in in these sorts of statements. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, something in what you're saying puts in my mind a reminder that a lot of research is currently suggesting that one of the best ways a person can break an addiction, even as powerful a one as heroin, for instance, is for them to completely change their life circumstances at all levels as much as possible, that that, more than anything else, will increase the probability of success. In other words, to move to a different city or a different um, context, to get a different kind of job and do something completely different than one was doing before, to um, hang out with new people, um, perhaps, you know, because... There's an association that's too strong with people who've been less than helpful <laughs> in that a pattern. 
so that people who completely reinvent themselves have a greater chance of completely um, changing around the patterns that were reinforcing or continuing the addictive pattern in the first place. This is true. The, uh, the experience of veterans in the Vietnam War uh, is, is completely instructive in this regard and backs up what you're saying. Um, back uh, during the Vietnam War, there were thousands, tens of thousands of GIs, maybe even hundreds of thousands, that were experimenting with heroin and becoming dependent on it while they were in Vietnam. It was mm -hmm. potent, it was inexpensive, it was easily available, and although when we think about uh, wartime as uh, episodes of terror and victory, uh, I think in reality it's mostly uh, this horrible boredom that, mm -hmm. uh, 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 that people try to escape from. And so there was great fear that these veterans would then return to the United States with uh, heroin addiction and be a great disruption to our society. And this did not develop to the extent that was feared. In fact, 98% of the soldiers gave up heroin on their way back to the United States. Many of them came by ship. And so they had time to go through the detoxification process and withdrawal process while they were on the ship mm -hmm. and uh, heroin was not available to them. Yes. And then you could also say, okay, well, when they got back to the United States, the price was much higher, the quality was much lower, uh, they didn't know uh, where to get heroin, and so many of them uh, simply abandoned it because it was no longer convenient. Yes. And also, uh, this kind of dovetails into an experiment called Rat Park, where it's, it's notoriously difficult to get healthy uh, rats in a, in a uh, high-quality environment to get attached to heroin uh, or even cocaine. And if you put these rats in a very stressful and deprived environment, then they will find uh, uh, heroin more attractive. But as soon as you improve the environment, they will quit using the opiate and go back to preferring to hang out with their fellow rats and, and engage in rat-like recreational activities. And uh, you could argue then that a similar thing happened with the GIs when they returned from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So there was some strength in the soldiers uh, and in the environment that they returned to that dissuaded the vast majority of them uh, yeah. from continuing to use heroin. So it would seem that perhaps when it comes to agency and restoring agency, the social contextual factor is a huge piece of this. That, you know, in terms of thinking holistically, when I think biopsychosocial, the social in particular would seem to be really strong. Yes, and in fact, um, it's very interesting to look at um, drug-taking activity as a, a ritual uh, that supports relationships. Uh-huh. And you could go all the way to uh, the idea of communion or potluck dinners 
Mm-hmm. Uh, people get together and they consume some sort of substance as a way of facilitating time together so that they can engage in relationships. Uh, the, the value being the relationship. And certainly when people get together, there's sometimes a, a, a kind of an unstated competition to see who can know the most and be the best informed and uh, understand the problems and opportunities uh, uh, in the environment better than, than their fellows. Yeah. And so some people have great difficulty then giving up their their role amongst their drug-using friends. Indeed. One of the things that uh, has also emerged, I think, is uh, a polarized society where, unfortunately, this war on drugs has often become a war on poor people or on uh, a war on people of color And the perception is us versus the man, the Uh community versus the police. And unfortunately, people that are engaged in some of these cultures, they see the police not as their protectors, but as a threat. Yeah. And turning that over is, is quite difficult for many people. That, for me, makes another great existential link. Um, An existential psychologist by the name of Kirk Schneider has written a book called The Polarized Mind (laughs) along the lines of exactly what you're talking about. And the need to sort of depolarize our thinking would be a way of addressing a lot of the social issues that seem to crystallize around this either-or, us-them, othering kind of mentality that springs up in the way that you're talking about. That's an excellent point, and that segues into the connection between some of the obsessive-compulsive behaviors that we see and the link to uh, various activities or substances. Um, People often end up in an internal struggle between different desires, and the harder they struggle the less likely they are to be able to uh, stay on their chosen track. They're more likely to fall by the wayside. Uh, For example, if I uh, uh, find myself getting irritated about something and I say, I am not going to lose my temper. I am not going to lose my temper. And I stir myself up and I use a huge amount of willpower to suppress my anger when it turns out that anger is a manifestation of willpower and determination. Yes. Then what I'm doing is I'm, I'm feeding the very fire that I'm uh, fighting against. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I wonder then, too, if it isn't inaccurate to say we get addicted to, say, depressive states or anxiety states or poor me states... If this is something, you know, that we can't seem to keep from engaging in, for instance, poor pitiful me thinking, well, here we go again with me being the underdog and I never get my fair shake in life and, you know, everyone else has it better. Um, If I keep falling into that and I can't seem to stop myself from doing that, am I addicted to that kind of thinking? Is it an overextension of the concept that I'm 
invoking there. No, you're. I think you're 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 onto something that's really fundamental and important. Um, there are these uh, loops in systems where, when we, for example, say, "Oh, poor pitiful me, I am a worthy person," but these other people do not understand, and then I give myself this sort of pity. But unfortunately, I also have this anger at feeling deprived. And basically, uh, yes, we can get addicted to the doom channel inside of our own head. And mm -hmm. we, can, we can forget to tune into the opportunity channel. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that when we watch these movies inside our head about uh, doom and, and how unfair something is and the treachery that's been done to us, uh, we can find ourselves in a, in a state of physical anticipation where we're getting ready to uh, fight or ready to suffer. And this preparation then invokes stress and it produces sensations of suffering. So one might say then in those circumstances agency or what we call agency or free will or the awareness of choice and freedom um, to act in ways that might be helpful gets smothered by um, confirmatory bias, if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, getting used to things being a certain way and literally n not being willing and then not being able to see evidence to the contrary. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the misery that we produce becomes proof of our miserable state. Mm -hmm. And um, our failure to be happy becomes proof that <laughs> we're supposed to be miserable. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very interesting to look at the uh, agency and the decision-making process. And, and what does it mean to have choice? Um, uh, basically, uh, when, if, if we have the, the power of choice then that must mean that there are options. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, certainly if we're unawa unaware of an option, well, then it's not a real option. And sometimes we get so into the habit of dwelling on doom and limitations and dread that, uh, yes, we literally do become unaware of our options. Yeah. Uh, the very act of deliberating inside of ourselves is to weigh uh, different trains of thought. And in some cases, we get so into the doom channel that we're measuring this doom versus that doom. Do you want to yeah. die by hanging, or do you want to be shot? <laughs> and, uh, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, no, I want to break out of here and be free. I want to persuade the judge I didn't do it. <laughs> and... Mm -hmm. and um, um, so yeah, we uh, we oftentimes lose awareness of our uh, uh, of our opportunities. So in fact, I can see, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say I could see why conspiracy theories then are so attractive and compelling for some people because you know if we then get used to not having agency, it just becomes logical that there are these massive forces arrayed against us that are all linked together in, in sort of, uh, you know, they're, they're um, scheming together to uh, 
overthrow us or to get in our way to um, undermine what it is that we're trying to do. And those conspiracy theories could become very elaborate and increasingly bizarre as explanatory constructs and yet make ultimately perfect sense to us if we're, if, 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 you know, in extreme levels and extreme polarization. So what we call delusional states or what we call even psychotic kinds of states could be extreme manifestations of this odd addictions model that we're talking about. Yes, yes, I would agree with that. I think if you look at the process of deliberation, we have uh, uh, at least two different trains of thought, two different ideas, and the word uh, deliberate is related to Libra, the scales. So we weigh these trains of thought, and then to decide is to cut off that train of thought that we've decided not to go with. Mm-hmm. And so this is the, this, the ability to do this successfully is what gives us our agency. Mm-hmm. And to, to do that, we have to have an awareness of, uh, of options, and then we have to be able to uh, make a choice to, to decide not to do something and then stick to it. And the way we do that is by doing something else. Uh, and some people with uh, OCD, for example, uh, the thought might occur to them, oh, is the door locked? And then, oh, well, I think I locked it. Well, are you sure you locked it? And after a while, it's like the only way to solve the problem is to get up and go and check and see if the door is locked. And then you go and you sit down and, oh, well, did you check right? Are you sure you checked? And, and so people can get into these loops of behavior yes. where it seems like the only option is to go ahead and cave in to that impulse. Yes. I, I checked, but maybe I convinced myself that it was fixed, and so now I've right. got to make sure that I just didn't falsely delude myself. Right, right. Fixed. Maybe I only thought about doing it, and but I didn't really do it. I should... <laughs> So people get stuck in these loops, and likewise with uh, an impulse that might have uh, some physical sensation behind it, like uh, hunger or like uh, a mild state of of substance withdrawal, um, yeah, people can then get the illusion that the only way to deal with that impulse is to cave in and go and do it. And I think then that this causes an erosion of agency. Yeah. So the opposite of the erosion of agency, where the only solution is to get up and go do it, is to pause. Yeah. And if we develop that habit of pausing before we get up and go check to see if the door is really locked or to see if the oven is off, if we develop that habit of pausing then that can grow. And this is uh, uh, basically the, no, I'm not deciding right now. Yeah. That opens up that possibility of mindfulness. There we go. And that possibility of mindfulness, uh, that pause, is, I think, the first step in uh, growing that sense of agency that we have in the world. That cultivating that observer piece that may not seem to be present at first but develops that piece of you that can kind of stand back and say oh look at this other part of me that wants to go check this repeatedly as if it 
as if I haven't already done this a million times. Isn't look at that sort of silly piece of me wanting to do that right now. And isn't that isn't that interesting? Isn't that fascinating? Exactly. And so when you look then at the self, what you find is that yes, there is this observer, and then there are these trains of thought. The oh no, you already checked it versus the oh well, are you sure? What will happen if you don't check it? And that sense of urgency that can arise. So we have at least three players in any one uh, bit of thought or in any one decision. We have uh, an awareness and the, uh, that inner agent that decides, that cuts off one particular train of thought or another. And it does so moment by moment. But then we have these trains of thought that seem to have a life of their own. Mm-hmm. Even though we own them as part of ourselves, um, they seem they seem to have their their own sort of life, and they they seem to be able to almost uh, uh, strategize to ensure that they they are heard and that they get their way. Yeah. Well, and then then if we cultivate that mindful observer. That we could also become aware of that part of ourselves that longs, genuinely longs for things to be different. That part of us that says, oh, I wish I had the strength to not check over and over again. This is keeping me down. <laughs> I, I long for things to be different. And so now we have a part of ourselves that once desires change, that could ally with this observer part. And, you know, then we're mu- it's like we're mustering resources we weren't aware that we had. Yeah. And it's really interesting to look at these internal struggles at their basic level. Um, and you're right, rallying that other uh, yeah. possibility as opposed to caving into the first one is very helpful. Um, and, um, one of the things I think we forget to do is to include all of our different desires in these internal conversations that we have. Yeah. And sometimes one of the things that can cause us a loss of agency is to ignore one of our desires. Yeah. And then we find ourselves suddenly ambushed by rage or panic and uh, uh, then we experience that loss of control, that tipping point where the, the frontal lobe is suppressed and the brainstem takes over. Yeah. And the temporal lobe is running amok, maybe, with its, you know, arousal and aggression and frustration. And Yes, and, yes. And how, how, could you, how could you speak to me like that, you fool? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's hilarious to listen uh, in on uh, brainstem logic uh, as to, uh, you know, the the need to get revenge for all of these little slights and whatnot that are not even actually real. Uh Uh-huh. It it drives a lot of what we do. Uh, Yeah. One of the things that uh, uh, is out there as a sort of a conspiracy theory is the reptilians. Oh, yes. And um, uh, certainly we do have a reptilian part of our brain. 
Yes. And it does take over at times and cause us to do uh, 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 unusually animalistic and unthoughtful things. Yes. And it could be said that, to a certain extent, our addictions uh, utilize those mechanisms to yes. have their way with us. Yes. So, in terms of trauma, then, uh, certainly in a, in a lot of cases, people are using the addiction to block out the energies of a trauma um, and uh, uh, those sensations. Um, to self-soothe and to feel better. Yeah, and then... Uh, uh, there's this feeling that some people have that once trauma has occurred, that person is broken forever. Yeah. Uh, how, how, what What do you have to say about about that sort of an idea? Well, you know, when I run across that with clients, um, I try to work with them toward a reframe of the idea of broken. I mean, I do think that this notion of trauma recovery is problematic because recovery implies a return to a previous state and you know i think in the normal course of life events we don't remain the same <laughs> you know it's like we, we can't go back to who we were at age six we can't really even go back to who we were last year in many ways now with something like a trauma that is so disruptive and so transformative it, we are a completely different person than we were before the trauma. So to think that we could return to that pre-trauma state is a little problematic. But we can certainly learn to explore the person that we are now and increasingly being discussed is this notion of post-traumatic growth that while we wouldn't necessarily have chosen this or would wish it on even sometimes our worst enemy, the trauma can be an avenue for quantum leaps in transformative growth and insight and awareness and, you know, life lessons learned that couldn't possibly be learned any other way and the development and attainment of wisdom. So that person we are now isn't necessarily entirely a problematic person. In fact, that person could be a lot more of a wise person, too. Yeah, I agree. And I think that uh, people do use certain key words uh, in dealing with addiction. In fact, there's almost this whole language around addiction uh, where the idea of recovery um, and the ideal, the ideal of sobriety, uh, which to outsiders uh, uh, means something different. Yeah. And what we're talking about is uh, a person that is being wiser and enjoying a return of agency. A return of their faculties and their joy and of of being present in the moment that they would yes. not have if they were intoxicated or in withdrawal yeah and it's interesting to to look at that pushing away process uh, that sometimes takes place in trauma. A lot of policemen, for example, when they've encountered uh, or soldiers when they've encountered some kind of very stressful situation. And they have this ideal of themselves as not being afraid. Yeah. And so when they experience fear, they feel diminished. They feel like, well, I'm just chicken and uh, not the great warrior, the hero. And 
so they push away those feelings of fear or those feelings of anger. And then when they push them away, that uh, desire to be safe becomes stronger and it starts to manifest in horrific ways as images of uh, uh, bombed out graveyards with the bones all showing and yeah. all sorts of things will start to break through into uh, uh, waking consciousness and they can develop uh, uh, a syndrome of, of not being able to be present in the moment because they're distracted by these sorts of, of inputs. Yeah, very good. Very good. So sometimes learning to uh, face those inner energies and to befriend them and to bring them back into that internal conversation that we experience as, as deliberation and consciousness and making up our mind, uh, that can help to resolve this sense of separation that can occur within the self. Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, again, fear being not the absence of courage, but, um, you know, courage happens in spite of fear. You know, courage is acting in spite of fear. And I've sometimes wondered aloud with my clients if an absence of fear in circum certain circumstances wouldn't actually more accurately indicate a form of sociopathy. <laughs> oh, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to open up this whole subject of uh, what is the self, what is agency, and what is it to heal? How do you become whole? Yeah. Um, well, we've used up our time today, and uh, hopefully we can continue these sorts of conversations in the future in a productive yeah. way and, and answer some of these uh, questions that we've, that we've uncovered.